afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 44, and today we're coming back to dwarves. So we were looking at dwarves last time. Um, I did a little overview of Tolkien's own history in, in developing his dwarves, and then we did some discussion of dwarves in the Peter Jackson films. Uh, focusing there on the sort of shift between the the kind of adaptation choices they were making and but, but sort of not not necessarily shift how the adaptation choices that they made in the Hobbit films related back to the adaptation choices that they made uh, in the Lord of the Rings films with Gimli primarily. Um, so now today we want to move past the Peter Jackson films and look at uh, dwarf uh, the the adaptation of dwarves as, as you know kind of continuing this sort of case study, dwarves, right, uh, that we're sort of doing here, um, and think about the depiction in other places, especially in the Rings of Power, uh, where, of course, the dwarf depiction was very prominent in season one, um, and also perhaps touching on some other um, uh, some other things. Other uh, places we see yeah. dwarves. Yeah, exactly. Some other places where, where we see dwarves. So, um Dwarves has been a really fun thing to think about. I have yeah. not spent a lot of brain cells on dwarves and it's been a really fun one to explore and just to, like the differences of the reinterpretations that we've seen. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're getting into Rings of Power because obviously it was one of my favorite parts of, of Rings of Power and I think mm -hmm. it was yours too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, and so first I apologize uh, to, that we've had audio issues and we're still having audio issues. We are doing a workaround for audio issues. So yes, there is a reason um, uh, that my audio doesn't sound like it normally does. Hashtag blame Zoom. But anyway, we're working around it and we're doing okay. Um, if I'm inaudible or my audio starts to sound particularly strange, it's lower quality than usual <laughs> but uh if that's the only issue we'll continue on but anyway that's why we're late sorry i've been wrestling with the audio stuff although i was wow. i was trying to argue for the first version because it sounded like i needed to like cut some tracks and, and do some raps to his his first <laughs> everything yes. he said had like 19 consonants in it i was like burp, 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 burp. <laughs> So no, I don't a, think that would help I, our dwarf conversation. Right. A kind of distortion, which could be effective in some circumstances, but not necessarily uh, not necessarily in others. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, hey, let's start with Meow Indeed's question. I, think I know. That's a great this, question. It is a Good great question. question. Meow Indeed says, is, the ring, in, is Rings of Power the first adaptation that focuses on both dwarven and elvish culture and the dynamics between both? I would argue that the Hobbit movies... Uh, in the Hobbit movies, the Wood Elves are merely antagonists and not really explored as a culture. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so that's really interesting. Now, I, I will say the one, uh, ironically, uh, the one element of uh, the Hobbit films where I'm not sure I agree with you, Meow, indeed, is Toriel. Um, Toriel's character, um, Legolas's character itself does not, I think, give us much insight like legolas is, is like a bad data point right um not only because he's legolas right but also in some ways he's not representative right like toriel in toriel's character the films were giving us the perspective of a you know sort of run-of-the-mill uh wood elf who was not part of the royal family right that was one of the interesting reasons to uh create 
um, to create her character. Um, and I know lots of, I, it's funny. Um, at the time when the films were out, I was ready to defend Toriel's character. It might sound strange or even perverse for me to say this, but in retrospect, Toriel's character is one of my favorite things about those films. Like I would list Toriel's character as aggressively among the top five to 10 best things about the Hobbit films, honestly. Like it has, it had to happen. I don't mean Toriel's character exactly itself. There had to be um, a character besides the Elven King that we saw other than like the butler right in that one scene of course she turned out to be the captain of the guard from that one there's only one scene in the in the hobbit book where we encounter anybody but the elven king who's not even named he's just called the elven king right um and that is the scene where bilbo takes the keys from the captain of the guard uh, who is getting drunk with the butler right so that scene between the butler and the captain of the guard is the only glimpse we get into wood elf culture outside of the Elven King and what the Elven King chooses to do and how he chooses to lead his people, right? Um, that the film needed to give us something other than the King and the King's son, um, I think was necessary, unless the Wood Elves were just going to remain a kind of caricature. Um, I think that that was necessary in doing, in, in, in the adaptation choice. If so, therefore I felt in advance, I felt that they had to give us a, uh, another Wood Elf character. And if they were going to give us another Wood Elf character, there was no excuse for not making it a woman, right? I mean, like all the male characters in The Hobbit, if you're going to invent a new character, surely you're not going to invent yet another male character, right, to throw into the mix like that. Um, so conceptually, the idea of, I was 100% behind the idea of Toriel's character. Um, I thought that the, you know, whole love triangle thing was as awkwardly and painfully executed as anybody else does. But I don't blame, like, the concept of Toriel's character on that. Like, what they chose to, how they chose to integrate her character into the plot was horrible. The lines that they gave to her in the third movie were worse than, you know, the romantic scenes in Attack of the Clones, for crying out loud. It made Anakin Skywalker look like an eloquent lover for crying out loud. Um, but like, so, I mean, like, I'm not in any way disagreeing with that. But again, the kind of reaction that I find that people have to Toriel's character, um, I, I don't have it. Like, I think I think the character is a good idea. And I think that many things about it um, was were, were, were actually well executed. Again, not her plot, not, not, not the especially not the romantic plot and not the and, and not, <laughs> definitely not her lines uh, in. Um, uh, in in the Battle of Five Armies, but um, but again, like in as much as Toriel's character does give us a sense of the um, uh, 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 a, a sense of the the culture of the Wood Elves to some extent, more certainly than we would have now. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, that 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 I think that I think was was interesting. Um, I certainly think the relationship between the elves and the dwarves was certainly handled in a more balanced way in the rings of power than we've ever seen it done. Um, what do you mean by balance? I mean, in the sense of seeing both sides of it more, um, the, 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 there's, I don't think there's ever been anything like the Elrond Durin relationship 
in season one of the Rings of Power. Even the Legolas Gimli relationship in the Lord of the Rings films is not as balanced as that, is, is not as fully developed as that. Yeah. Because Legolas and Gimli at the end of the day are still side characters. I mean, they're, they're, they're important. I'm not trying to diss their roles in the film, but I mean, they're not the center of the story. Um, and so therefore there's only so much time to develop their relationship. And I love how they handle it. I mean, I, I, I gotta, I, I'm not, uh, but the, the choice to put Elrond, Durin and their relationship at the core, you know, like so close to the center um, of the story there. Um, I think it's um, uh, that, that, that choice is something I think that's sort of beyond, <laughs> beyond and uh, further um, than, um, than, than we've seen, you know, so balanced in that sense that we get to see both sides. Um, the fact that we have, you know, scenes with, uh, like the scenes with Durin in Linden, where we're seeing the Elvish, like, you know, mm -hmm. resistance and perspective, the scenes between Durin and his father, uh, where yeah. we're getting the Dwarvish resistance to it. And that, you know, we're, we're seeing the attitudes, even like stuff from Celebrimbor, where we see yep. his, he's open to the dwarves more than say Gogalit is, but he is ignorant about them and doesn't understand them. And I mean, there's so many different um, ways in which we're kind of brought into that relationship in ways that I think we never have been. Yeah, and I like the word balance because when you first said it, that's why I asked for clarification, but like when you first said it, I was thinking about that of like the dynamics of these relationships yeah. because everything in a film has to serve a purpose. Very, very rarely is something in just for kicks. And when it right. is in just for kicks, it's so noticeable. And usually it can still land because, you know, somebody put it in for fun or a cameo or a nod or something like it can still land well. But everything's there like to drive a story forward or to add you know, like even set pieces, like everything is purposeful in a film. So I feel like with Legolas and Gimli, everything they did was to build that singular mm -hmm. understanding and definition of a dwarf elf relationship and to move a story along their own timeline. Whereas with Rings of Power, I do think everything has a purpose, but we have so much nuance. You know, there's so many different kinds of relationships shown and even if you're just looking at our one relationship of Elrond and Durin, there's so many peaks and troughs to that. It feels like a real relationship, not just mm -hmm. something to move a story forward. It feels yes. like we're actually participating in this relationship yes. of peaks and troughs and, and lovely, you know, moments between these two friends as they kind of come back together and stand together and discover and fight and disagree, but still are friends. And it's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, um, and yes, as several people are pointing out, I think there is every reason to believe that the dwarf elf thing in the rings of power is very likely to move forward. Like is likely to, to actually increase because Durin and Elrond don't seem to be going away. Right. You know, that relationship is very likely to continue and be a major point. Um, I agree, um, with, um, uh, with praise that, um, we have an opportunity for further relationship between Celebrimbor and Narvi, which I think we're going to get. Um, I expect that to be uh, to be a feature of season two. So we'll get a second elf dwarf relationship, um, which again will be interesting to see how that uh, how that progresses. And then third, we also have exactly as um, as Phil was pointing out, um, there is a very prominent link between Goadriel and the dwarves, yeah. right? 
um, which I expect is something that's going oh, to be developed in the next four seasons. Yeah. So, um, and we so, know from our conversations from the showrunners that like everything was sketched out for the five seasons, but they were very focused in on what we were reacting to, what everyone was talking about, what was popular, what wasn't. And I don't know if they would like rewrite, you know, all of season two or anything, but the doors were a clear runaway, I think, from yeah. season one. Yeah. So I would imagine everybody's taking that on board and realizing that we want to see more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If there was any question about whether or not you were going to, you know, if, if, if there's any uncertainty in your mind as to where you might shift uh, focus, no one's going to object to more dwarves. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Phil, I've been wondering that question, too, uh, from the outside, like objectively. So the question is, do we assume that Narvi is male or is there a scope for more explanation? Could they could they could they gender shift uh, Narvi's character? Of course, assuming that we even know in the books that Narvi is 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 male. Uh, we know nothing about the name. Um, we're not given the history there. I assume he's male because of the way that Tolkien emphasizes that generally dwarf women don't interact with the outside world. And so as somebody who is obviously interacting with Celebrimbor, based on what we're, Tolkien says about dwarves, it would be unlikely to imagine uh, that Tolkien intended Narvi to be female. Um, do I think? Uh, do I think that that means it's impossible for them make them to make that choice? I don't. Um, what I would be interested in, I would be interested to see if they did choose to have. So in Disa, of course, we already have a very prominent female dwarf character, and notice how with her they're kind of walking the line, right? On the one hand, um, we're told that dwarf women tend to be like sort of both more secretive and sort of kept secret in a sense. Like they tend to uh, be stay at home in the sense that they don't wander out of dwarf lands and, 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 and wander about generally. Um, we don't see Disa wandering about, right? She doesn't like nothing that she does you know differs you know from what uh, uh from what we're told there about their general practices and things um she does play a prominent role with Durin. she does meet with elrond but she meets with elrond when he comes to her house right mm. to their to their house right as he would right as she would if you know presumably but she's in no but she's in no way submissive you no, know like no. it's her territory i'm going to roll the roost i'm going to get manipulate the situation right he does right. it very well yeah yeah exactly exactly um yeah so no i think it's a really interesting question um i yeah yeah um yeah well phil see that's what's so interesting is that tolkien's own ideas i mean I mean, as i said tolkien's idea I, I think tolkien's ideas when he went to his grave his ideas about dwarves were not very firmly fixed. I mean, he does, he has not, I mean, certainly when you look at going back uh, to Meow's original question about like the sort of the, the balanced development, like getting both elf and elf culture developed and dwarf and dwarf culture developed. I mean, if you want to look at balance between those two, every single work of Tolkien is vastly unbalanced in favor of the elf. You could argue, of course, The Hobbit is much more dwarf focused than elf focused. Um, uh, because the dwarves are main characters along with Bilbo. But again, as far as like his world building is concerned, as, as, as far as his own invention, I don't think anyone could deny that Tolkien spent way more time with elves, with elves and elf history and elf stories and elf language than he did with dwarves. Um, 
And even in his later uh, sort of world building period where he spent a lot of time in the late 50s and in the 60s uh, kind of filling out and, and figuring out stuff, all those wonderful things in the nature of Middle Earth involving math and uh, numerical tables, um, it was still with elves that he was spending all of his time and mm. not dwarves. He did do some dwarf, dwarf world building in that time. We just spent some time discussing this in the War of the Jewels, my War of the Jewels discussion on Wednesday nights uh, in the last month, the last, last few weeks. Um, but again, when you compare that to, there's a parallel essay. There's like the, you know, he, he's in the middle of writing stories and he's like, I'm going to, you know, work out all of these details, right? I'm going to write a little essay, you know, about, um, in one case, the laws and customs among the Eldar for the elves um, and concerning the dwarves uh, for the dwarves. And he, you know, one is like, the elf one is like 10 times longer than the dwarf one. He's asking questions. He's thinking about it. But again, he certainly doesn't. Um, um, uh, he's, it's certainly it's certainly not balanced. So, I mean, there's, um, yeah, it's. Uh, That's kind of great, though. Like when you're yeah. thinking adaptation, like the more information you have, the easier it can be sometimes right like we've got lots yeah. of detail about our main characters and so much backstory and an actor has all of that to read through to kind of build themselves out and that's really empowering but it's also tough because the expectation is going to be real high because the reader has that much information in front of them as well whereas when you have characters that are I want to say less developed, but there's less focus on them, then you have right. much more scope for interpretation. And that's yeah. exciting creatively. So yes. you do get to do more stuff. But then with diehard fans and, you know, readership latching on to what we do have, yes. that's where we get dwarves with beards fights because they're right. latching onto the one nugget of text that they do have. Right. They don't right. understand the variation within that. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. And and how much do you, t when you're in this kind of a situation, right, where, where comparatively little is known, like comparatively little is known about the dwarves compared to the elves, right, uh, in Tolkien's world, as far as what he himself wrote and developed. So what does that mean then? What is the status of the stuff that we know, right? Does that mean that, because of course one tendency is to be like, well, okay, so the, the few like nuggets of information we like want to protect much protect. more. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of deviating from those, it's like, oh, you know, you've missed 100 percent of what Tony yeah. said about dwarves. Yeah. Right. But I'm not sure that's the right attitude there, because, yeah. again, in his when I look at the trend of his own development, the, the development of his own ideas about the dwarves, he was many of the things, many of the short list of things that people would say um, are is like rock bottom. This is, you know, what it means to be a dwarf in Tolkien's world, namely. Uh, like axe wielding, beard wearing uh, craftsman, whose you know whose most important thing is is forging thing, right? Mm -hmm. Well, none of those three things are necessary. Like he waffled on all of those three things. I mean, like he he was willing to change those things, especially the craftsmanship thing. That's a late addition, a super late addition. Um, so I mean, it's uh, you know his they were not part of his original concept of dwarves at all. 
Um, so again, and I'm not saying it's not cool and it's not important. And I think, you know, I would put that on my list too. Like if I'm, if I'm doing an adaptation, you know, if I'm starting an adaptation from scratch and I'm depicting dwarves, I would definitely want to put the role of craftsmanship at the center of their culture, because I think that like, it's not where Tolkien started, but I think it's a really powerful element of where he ended up. And so that's great. But, um, uh, but anyway, like I said, I, um, and it's really useful in storytelling, yeah. you know, if you have a race yeah. of people that are really well known for their crafts, then that's going to be something they're known for in the world. Yeah. So that's something that can stretch into these other cultures and therefore break boundaries and, and go into geographically different places and brings them into the story a lot more. So it's a really useful tool for them yeah. to be craftsmen. Right, right, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's hard. And I know that a lot of fans don't like the idea of saying since we know so like the dwarves are a, are a blanker slate right and it's it's it is uh uh easier to um in fact in some ways even necessary to fill in stuff and to make choices which are not going to um, here's another thing to keep in mind one of the things that always stimulated tolkien's own process of he would say discovery, not invention, not create, not, he wouldn't talk about his creative process. He would talk about his process of discovery. That was his language for it, right? Um, when did he discover things? He discovered things when he came to write stories about them, right? Um, again, how did he discover what he did about dwarves? Why are dwarves, why do we have this idea? Why are dwarves not still uh, uh, cranky and disreputable arms dealers selling weapons to both sides, right? What changed? Well, what changed is he started writing a story about dwarves, right? He started writing The Hobbit. And by the end of The Hobbit, having traveled with Thorin and company and brought Thorin and company to the end of their story, he found when he got to the end of their story, that's not all there was to them. There was more. And so he's like, oh, okay, there we go, right? So when an adaptation is telling stories and developing these ideas, they're, they're, they're going to discover stuff too. And there are a lot of things about Tolkien's when something when when something in Tolkien's world is in that state where he has a an initial idea and just kind of puts it because it's not the story's not about that right so the story hasn't like pushed the boundaries of that yet mm -hmm. um, a lot of those things that he just drops he himself will end up like deviating from completely once he starts engaging with the story and so the fact is in an adaptation there're going to be many places where an adaptation is pushing against many of those kinds of things which Tolkien himself never pushed against because this story never got there. But this right. new story is going there, right? And that, you know, so this is why you can't, this is why it's so wildly inappropriate to be saying things like Tolkien never intended that, Tolkien would hate the, what they've done. We don't know what Tolkien would want. If you looked back, if you knew Tolkien's writings only through the first 30 years of his career, right? Cut it off after 30 years. And then you bring to that things that he was saying 15 years later, right? 15, 20 years later, um, and you, which you hadn't known in advance, you would totally be saying the same thing. Oh, Tolkien, Tolkien would hate that. He'd be rolling over in his grave. No, that's what he himself said, right? I mean, his own. So this is why you can't, like, you can't know. You can't know what Tolkien would have, you know, how he would have responded and what he would have done. And I can already hear people saying, yeah, but that's just Tolkien. No, that is definitely for most creators. You know, this is, yes. their, this yeah. is their right as creators to grow and, and adapt with their own work. And whatever decisions they made, they made. And whatever decisions we make or filmmakers make, 
yeah. they get that right too. So it's taking all of that fodder into consideration and then making the best story that you can. That's exactly yeah. what Tolkien did, right? Like he took all the fodder that he had, lived with it for a little while and made the best story he could with what he had at his disposal. The exact same yeah. thing that you're doing now. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And um, so one of the things um, I saw somebody talk about um, uh, the question of Disa becoming a villain, hoping that Disa wasn't going to become a villain. Um, on the one hand, somebody was asking about that, just saying like, I, you know, I, that she, she really hopes that they don't make Disa into a villain. Because mm. um, like that last, her last speech in her last scene there in this, in this, you know, in the second last episode was concerning, right? The mm. like, you know, the claiming the mithril to themselves and the, I mean, what are they going to lead a rebellion? I mean, it, it's not looking good. That last scene was a bad look uh, from Disa. Um, Edith, yeah, thanks. It was you. Um, so Edith, I, Edith, I totally hear where you're coming from. Like I, I, on the sense that like, I love Disa's character too. But I have to admit, I was a little bit excited there, right? I mean, like, it would be really bold and a really interesting story for a character, a character whom we do love to, if she did go bad, or at least, like, flirt with it very seriously. Maybe she gets a, a, a you know, a, a, a redemption arc, maybe not, you know. Um, well, and I, she'll think she's doing good, so... Yeah. Then yeah. you just see her as like driven and ambitious, right? Like, oof, oof, that opens up a whole thing. My feminism flag is like, oof, there's a lot in that. It, <laughs> but I, I can, it, I can see them taking that risk. Yeah, that's that's exactly the feminism flag. Exactly, I'm like, that's gutsy. <laughs> it's gutsy to, um, especially in the context of. I mean, of course, as many people pointed out, many people uh, taking what I felt was either. Um, uh, uh, unfair or even highly objectionable exception to this fact, um, there were a lot of strong female characters uh, in the Rings of Power. Um, and if they are in fact going to show at least one or two of them going wrong, you know, uh, I, I that will be interesting. That will be a risk. That will yeah, be a I risk. Feel like we also I think it will be really interesting. I feel like at some point we should probably also have a, a, a episode on strong female characters because we've talked yeah. about that and it's become such a cliche of like strong female yes. characters in the industry that you don't want to have that anymore because it's just a tick box exercise yes. in most films yes. now whereas this yeah. i think we would want to see something that is against that it's a good character and all we're saying is a strong female character like we're discussing with Diza just means she's well-written and has nuance and has these, these layers because right. every human is corruptible. Every human could have, you know, yep. the possibility to want power and to see that from a well-written character. Very cool. So right. yeah, just wanted to right. put a little flag in there about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I, I agree. Let's come back and talk about uh, the, the, the 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 strong female character issue because I think that that's I think it's really important. interesting you know like it was a trend that set off a lot of really great things that we had never seen on screen as women I remember I remember crying and Wonder Woman you know and things like that <laughs> right. woman on screen like that even though there's a lot of flaws with Wonder Woman but right. um yeah I think that would be a really fun one for us to kind of explore yeah. a little bit yeah yeah it would it would um, again especially since this became such a such a 
a strong and strongly cliched reaction to Rings mm -hmm. of Power. Um, you know, from Elon Musk on down, but um, or up, depending. Uh, yeah, depending on where you put <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Elon, are you um, listening? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, so but back to you know Disa as it relates to this, uh, it will be interesting to see where they develop um, where they develop her character, and I I love the. I am. Tolkien. We know, like, so first of all, everybody has been anticipating from the very start, right, of the Rings of Power, um, you know, who, which characters are going to become Nazgul, right? Like, we we know about, like, we, we're pretty sure we're going to meet all or at least most of the Nazgul, right, before they turn. Um, but I just want to, like, sort of pause on that for a second. And I know it's slightly tangential to the dwarf question, but it is related to Disa, and we'll come back to that. Um, but... Um, Anyway, uh, the um, <sighs> Tolkien stories generally do a really, really good job of showing how good people with good intentions not only end up doing really bad things, but even in the end becoming horrible people, right? Mm. Um, and that is a thing that it is not trivial to show in a story. This has always been to me one of the things that's so ironic about people saying uh, the the most the oldest and most cliched uh, uh, bad critique of Tolkien that everything in Tolkien is all black and white everybody's either completely good or they're completely evil when again ironically he, I think he does a better job of showing people on that line and people crossing that line than 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 most authors I know um, and I thought that you know, Jackson did a really good job playing on this. The the extra sort of dimension that Peter Jackson gave to uh, Gollum and to the Gollum-Frodo relationship, I thought was a really, really good kind of exploration of this exact same frontier um, in, the, in the Jackson films. There is, at the very least, enormous scope for showing that similar kind of thing in, like, different ways and different motivations. Like, What's going to come of Theo, right? You know, is is he, you know, and how? Uh, is he going to go bad? And if so, how? Um, we have all these characters who look like they might be on the cusp of going bad. Um, um, you know, even like I think of even even the way they're depicting Farazan's character is interesting because mm. Farazan, um, you can see his motivations. Like he's 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 already sending up serious flags about you know his uh, you know what he's going to be and his uh you know future tyrant is already written all over him right those foundations are yeah yeah and yet like you can see how he could get from where he is to tyrant without just being evil and being like today i'm going to decide to go kill the younglings right i mean like it's it's not about it's not it's it's not like that um, and the, but even as I as I have been saying, um, uh, uh, Aarian, uh, the sister of of Isildur, um, whom I stand by my prediction, going to become the cutest Nazgul. Um, I, she, I think that her feet are already like a couple small steps down that path, um, and that we we can we see how that's been uh, how that's been set up. So. Um, anyway, I, I think that there's a lot of um, um, there's a lot that they're setting up in this way. So, like to have all the Nazgul showing up and turning, 
but it's not going to be just them, right? What about in other parts? What's happening with Kelly? What's going to be happening with Kelly Brimble? What's going to be? And then in the dwarves, right? So now I'm coming back to dwarves. Um, the fact that uh, so we've already been seeing, I think, in this. To me, what I think is sort of the um, the painful turn um, in at the end of season one. Uh, to me, the most the most painful tension at the end of season one of the Rings of Power was Durin and his father. Mm. Right, his father, who on the one hand looked gruff and 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 um, you know cold and um uh you know all of all of my like emotional sympathy was on the part of Durin advocating for his friend and everything else and yet almost every speech that his father made you know uh I was like he's not wrong like yeah that's uh um you know Tracks. he is yeah yeah he's he's completely right and justified in everything that he's doing and increasingly, the one whom I am support of, right, Durin and his love for Elrond and their, the, you know, the depth and quality of their friendship. Um, and I'm watching in episode seven and eight. Well, they're not in episode eight, but I'm watching in episode six and seven, the last two episodes that they were in. Um, no, were they in six? They weren't even in six. It was five and seven. Anyway, whatever. Point episode seven, chiefly. Um, I'm watching this and I'm saying, oh my goodness, like his, the thing that I love most about Durin, his compassion, his loyalty to his friend is misleading. him. Like I'm watching him. I'm rooting for him while at the same time, I feel that he's wrong, right? Like I'm pretty sure he's wrong actually. And then that conversation with Disa at the end seemed to kind of confirm to me that I was right to think that he was wrong. Right. Um, so, um, anyway, I, um, um, I, I think that that itself is a really, really fascinating turn when I think about both what they're doing with dwarf culture and how they're setting up, um, how they're setting up the future of elf dwarf relations, right? Oh, there's uh, a, so much in there I want to unpack, but you keep going. <laughs> no, no, no. So I, um, remember that, so we, we see a, an antagonism or a sort of baseline antagonism, right? Or distrust, let's say at least distrust between dwarves and elves, right? Um, uh, remember the conversation back in episode three, or I think it was three, um, between the, the first time we see King Durin uh, in that scene with when, when, when Prince Durin goes to him and uh, um, Durin's on his throne and we're seeing him from behind and I thought he might be dead uh, from the beginning. And then uh, anyway, like that, that's the scene in which he says, like, you know, he characterizes the, um, the relationship between the dwarves and the elves is like the relationship between the hammer and the stone. Right. Which is not a great look. Um, and then at the end he says, you know, what are you planning to do? This is when Durin Prince Durin says he's going to go to Linden. Right. Um, when Prince Doran expresses skepticism that Elrond hasn't told him everything, that Elrond might not know everything, um, and that he wants to go to Linden in order to find out what's really going on, right? And that skepticism, that resistance to trust, 
is praised then by his father as the right thing, the sensible thing for the future dwarf leader to be doing. Anyway, so we can see through all of these things, again, this sort of baseline distrust between the dwarves and the elves. We know that there is going to be, um, we know that there is going to be distrust uh, of a different sort later on, right? Like we know that when Gimli gets to um, Lothlorien, he's going to be, he's, they're not going to trust him enough to let him in, right? In the book, he's blindfolded, uh, and they're going to, they're going to blindfold just him, because they have a standing law against dwarves coming in to Lothlorien, right? So like, that's, that's a higher level of distrust, yeah. right? That's established by the Third Age. So I suspect that one of the things that they're going to be showing in the Rings of Power is how do you get from you guys are kind of weird and I'm not sure I trust you to we're going to pass a law that no dwarf can ever enter our lands right. unsupervised and unblindfolded, right? Like that's um, and the well, blindfold the is like an exception <laughs> that he's making. Like he's breaking the law by bringing the dwarf in at all. It's also so, yeah. starting to feel like there's a little bit of a pattern with the elves, though, isn't there? Because that's what they do with the men. They now have yes. like guards stationed over men because they can't trust them. So maybe yes. it's just an overreaction by elvish culture. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, yep, agreed, agreed. Um, so anyway, there's, there's, um, um, there is. So when I'm thinking, when I'm listening to Disa, right? Uh, and thinking about how, um, you know, if they're going to be leading her and Durin possibly into a sort of a darker direction. And yes, as people were talking about earlier on, um, there is, um, you know, uh, the, lots of people are thinking about the Balrog, right? You know, who's going to wake up the Balrog and how's that going to go down exactly and how's that going to be involved? And I agree that's obviously a question, you know, that's obviously going to be an issue. Um, but in its way, really, I don't think it's the primary one. I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a secondary concern, basically a secondary question. Um but um anyway. Yeah. Uh uh but um yeah, yeah. Dwarfish dwarfish culture was the other thing I thought we should kind of at least yeah. touch on. Just we've been talking a lot around it that that was my favorite part of um, the reveal of Casa Doom in Rings of Power was just, you know, we did a, I think I did a bit on Rings and Realms about it. Just in one shot, you get yeah. a real quick glimpse of the depth of their culture and their sophistication and the worlds that they can build and growing things and elevators, you know, all that beautiful stuff right. that right. their culture, I would just love to hear your thoughts on like how, what we knew before, but also the freedom then that the showrunners could take from that and how that, like, for me, it was how that world built the relationship too. You know, it was Elrond seeing it is how we saw it. We saw it through fresh eyes too. And we saw his awe. So it became yeah. our awe. Yeah. And that was yeah. really powerful. Like that, that would have been a very different scene if we were seeing it through Darren's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, you know, in some ways, the thinking about the seeing things through Duran's eyes, I think about the difference between the whole kind of tone of the scene as Elrond is being led through and we're getting that reveal and we're getting sort of his perspective and uh, the awe that he is experiencing uh, there. And then I think about the two like next scenes that he has, right? First, 
the rock breaking, the, the beginning of the rock breaking scene, right? When he's when they're in the, like that room, and then Durin comes in, and the other dwarves are all there cheering and, and stuff. Um, the feel there is so different from it, how it was when it came in, right? As soon as Durin himself enters, the tone shifts, and then you think about them departing and going up the lift together in that conversation, which is such a powerful conversation between the two of them. But again, even though there are elements of that, like looking at the lift, looking at the amazing feat of engineering that that lift is, you know, in the in uh, and and not just the the engineering, but the beauty of it, right? The carving of the was it like ravens, I think, at the top that were. But anyway, it was yeah. It was not only um, it was not only like Functional. impressive, but 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 beautiful, yeah. Um, anyway, like. But yet that scene, that wasn't the focal, the focal point of the scene. Because the focal point of the scene was so heavily on them and on their conversation, the rest of that became kind of peripheral, right? Which is what it should do. You know, you, yeah. should, you shouldn't be distracted by, like, the structure. It's fun when you are because you're like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful set. But being swept up in story is so yeah. much more powerful that you only get to do that when the set is good, though. You know, if the set mm -hmm. were bad, we'd right. be focused on it and we wouldn't right. pay attention to the story. Right. right. That everything right. has to play smart in the right way. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we get the... Um, so having introduced us to... So think of, like, how the... Um, um, think of how the reveal of Khazad Doom was, um, uh, was handled, right? Like, the, that progression. Uh, the progression that begins with that, you know, sure. Elrond's little tour, right? To the encounter with and interaction with Durin and those other dwarves and with the rock breaking scene. Right? And also that we get a real sense of tradition. You know, yes. this is how we establish a relationship. We break rocks. Like right. and right. and it, like I simplified it, but like it felt real serious. You know, like I'm right. I'm Though, okay. yes. So, so it did. It definitely did. But there was also at the same time this air of like they were also they also found it all quite funny. Right. Yeah. Um, it was a game it's not that they weren't taking it seriously, um, but even the, the the way in which they were participating, what was obviously a ritual and a ritual which, you know, they did treat formally and take seriously. Yet they themselves, they were, you know, they were drinking beer and cheering. This was, and, and not only that, but like Doran's own interactions with, he was prompting them to laugh, mm -hmm. you know, at him, at Elrond, at the situation even in its way, right? You know, so it was, um, and that was one of the things. There are lots of things that I wasn't a huge fan of of that scene. The, you know, the the crudeness and the belching and you know uh, uh, the beer spilling and things like that, right? Which um, were concerning in that this was our first interaction with dwarvish culture, and it looks like they're going straight to the Hobbit films, you know, right. like you know where you know we were like you know it began to look like that we were on the highway towards you know, nude pyramids and fountains again, you know, uh, like that same kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of cheapening and uh, what crudifying of, uh, of, of, of dwarf culture. Um, but do you think yet, that, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I think that might've been somewhat purposeful. So it does fit within our understanding thus far of dwarf culture. Look, here exists those goofy drunken guys. Yeah. But that's all we're going to show you of that because there's so much more. Right, right. That's only like they weren't trying to deny that that was and like 
so 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 you're saying basically they weren't trying to deny yes all right we're going to accept that that's an element of dwarf culture because we want to establish some kind of continuity with the dwarf culture you're familiar with from the peter jackson films right yeah um, i mean i don't know if that was purposeful or not but you can see the familiarity that that would make sense you know right. like it's like we we're saying with star wars like there's an element here that reads same world so i, yes. I could see yeah. saying that's okay right exactly when we're trying to figure out what what makes something star warsy you know, right. how do you know, how do you know that it fits? Um, and that there was a, give him a beer. I mean, right. Right. But we learned a lot more than that. So yeah, give him a beer, but start with giving him a beer. Um, yeah. and that enables you to kind of touch base with what you're familiar with. And then you move on because what we get immediately after that is him going home to his wife and kids, which is totally alien to the dwarf world that we got in any of the Peter Jackson movies. But also right before that, we have that conversation. So all of a yeah. sudden we see way more dynamic relationships than we've seen before. So yeah. you go from yeah. beer hall to whoa, powerful emotions to a yeah. familial relationship. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's, and man, and it comes back to when we were talking last time about, you know, when you look at two different projects like The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and it's unusual that you can assume the kind, the level of continuity that there was as far as the team putting it together, um, uh, such that you can consider it. Um, it's it's they're two separate adaptation projects, right? And they're not they're not the same. You can see lots of differences, but they're being done by the same people, basically, even with most of the same actors. Um, so uh, there's a there's an opportunity for close comparison there that normally you wouldn't have to do here. Of course, when we're talking about the rings of power and its relationship to the Peter Jackson world, we're already, we are exactly in that very much more complicated situation, right? Where on the one hand, it's not their movies, right? They're not, they're, they're not technically obligated to be, you know, continuous with the adaptation choices that they made in the Jackson films at all. And yet it's equally obvious that they would be, very foolish indeed not to give any thought to it whatsoever right right I mean, um, you can absolutely go off track and do your own thing and make a modern interpretation of romeo and juliet with guns and cars we've seen it happen right. and it worked sure. you know you can absolutely do that but you're doing it very mindfully you're very aware of the departure that you're taking and do it carefully whereas this they're aware of what came before and it's like they don't want to rock the boat you know it's like we want this to exist in the same world we're going to have you know even like the theme was done by howard shore i almost said james newton howard howard shore <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> Different yeah the, the first theme yeah 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 the first theme even has that you know the first season was filmed in new zealand there's there's just enough kind of through line production wise alongside our story and our visuals and our costume that it works in that world yeah, yeah, exactly. While at the same time, they can't just be slavish to that. You know, right. they can't just be, you know, if their goal as a production is just to try to reproduce, you know, all of the, you know, 100% of the Peter Jackson aesthetic and even the, you know, and all of the Peter Jackson adaptation decisions, um, then that's not going to go well at all, right? So it's it's a really interesting and a really complicated line, yeah, yeah. to walk. Um, so with the dwarves, I do think um, I felt that one of the things that was most um, that the 
Well, I was gonna, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to, to say this very carefully. One of the ways in which the, the Rings of Power depiction of dwarves was most uh, actively recalling the Peter Jackson depiction was in the crudeness and comedy. The tendency to comedy, um, by no means, of course, were the dwarf characters in the Rings of Power merely comic relief. I mean, that nobody could watch that show and come away with that conclusion. Um, uh, but there were not only moments of comedy, but moments of similar kind of, again, like the belching in the beer, right, for instance, um, are things that were like the kind of humor, especially in the Hobbit films, right? Things that became more broadly associated with things that had kind of um, uh, the seeds planted within the depiction of Gimli in things like the drinking competition with Legolas in the extended edition of the Lord of the Rings, for instance. Um, but then born out, you know, developed much more fully in the Hobbit movies, especially thinking about the time of the dwarves in Rivendell. Right, where a lot of uh, humor that didn't quite land with me um, was uh, was attempted uh, on this on this subject. Um, I think that we can see that seems to be one of the frameworks that they're sort of starting from. I mean, could you imagine how strange it might have felt if the Rings of Power had depicted the dwarves as like um, sort of quiet and elegant? Right, instead of like brash and, and a tendency towards loudness and crudeness, there's no textual reason why, like, uh, like on the question, for instance, of the table manners of dwarves, do they belch or do they not belch? Right, mm -hmm. that that is there textual evidence to support that question one way or the other? I do not believe there is. Right, I think that you could depict, you could make a choice where you were depicting a dwarf culture where you know, those kinds of manners towards others are of paramount importance within their culture, right? And like that they're a culture in which like they would not, they're like an honor-shame culture in which they would not dream of offending a guest or a host uh, in that way. And it would be the last thing that they would ever do. Um, I think you could imagine a dwarf culture like that, that could be made to work and could make to be made to fit, you know, within, uh, with, within, within Tolkien's world, because he doesn't, tell us that kind of thing uh in his stories um but they didn't do that right because right. that would have not that would have felt weird you know that yeah. and and so i do think that they were anyway yeah and just tonally it's nice to have the differentiation between the groups you know because if they were quiet and regal then they're too elvish if right. you know there's certain levels of just specific traits that you want assigned to these cultures right right right, right. yeah exactly yeah. Now, Phil, uh, let's take that example for a minute. So Phil's uh, uh, alluding to the song that the dwarves sing, um, the first poem in The Hobbit um, of um, uh, Blunt the Knives and Bend the Forks, right? The Chip the Glasses and Crack the Plates song um, in which the dwarves uh, poetically threaten to do all of these horrible things to the, um, uh, to the, to the, to the goods and property of their host, right? Um, so two things, right? One, they do not in fact do any of these horrible things as the narrator assures us, right? So they are not in fact in any way um, 
uh, acting inappropriately towards their host, they tease. Their the song is teasing their host outrageously, right? Um, but they are not in fact acting against him. Um, that teasing that does suggest something, right, about about their culture, right? Um, and yet, I don't see that question like that. We um, we're not going to do anything to your stuff. We're going to treat your you and your goods and your home with respect while we're here. But we're going to tease you about it, right? And we might threaten to as a joke, right? Still, to me, doesn't necessarily say that means they're also likely to belch in your face at the table. You know, like it's it's a it's a different sort of question. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah. So, uh, and I don't want to act as if it's only Peter Jackson's films that are lying behind these depictions of dwarves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. It is the primary, clearly. I mean, there's no question that the Peter Jackson, uh, the adaptation choices that Peter Jackson made um, are the most prominent and influential kind of background uh, that they have there as far as their own choice, these same kinds of cultural and visual uh, choices and things that they're making. Um, But it's not the only one either. Um, uh, Think of, for instance, of the tradition that gets a, established it gets connected with dwarves through snow white and the seven dwarves phil just mentioned them well you guys are on the same way there we go there we go (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah where of course in snow white and the seven dwarves snow white is this like civilizing influence on the seven dwarves right who are all living like slobs until snow white comes along and cleans up their act right um and I don't even want to get into like the gender politics of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in this way, right? Which, having observed that, I'll move on. But the but, but anyway, the point is, therefore, we can see like dwarves being crude and uh, you know crude and sloppy and 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 is is there right outside of the Tolkien world entirely, right? So, um. Uh, Although I feel like you could say yeah. that for any group of men living together in a house, you know, it yeah. might not be dwarves. Right. Agreed. Agreed. That's clearly what they were playing on in the in the Snow White film, right? Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and there are other things. I mean, of course, you can't talk about Tolkien's own depiction of dwarves without thinking about Norse mythology and the role of dwarves in Norse and Germanic mythology, which was a big influence, of course, on Tolkien's. Uh, picture of what dwarves looked like. Um, but anyway, back to the Rings of Power and their choices and how they set this up. Um, I do think that to me, the 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 transition point, of course, the, the turning point is the elevator ride with Durin and, uh, uh, and Elrond in that in episode two, um, which was, of course, the very first dwarf episode that there was. So uh, but then right after that turning point, the real kind of transition moment is in Durin's house when we meet Disa and uh, see his home and, uh, you know, they have the whole dinner party, uh, which still, I mean, I think the dinner party scene is still one of my favorite scenes from all of season one. Um, so good. Frankly. Um, and, and so really interestingly shot too. I think I did that bit for Rings and Realms yeah. too. Just note where the cameras are when you're watching that scene next, because I I haven't watched it in a while, but I I definitely remember it ended with us in Durin's spot, 
and just how powerful that was. Like, like you know, we saw Cause of Doom through Elrond's eyes, and then all of a sudden we see the elves through Durin's eyes, and right. that's right. been yeah, yeah. That scene was great, so well right. shot, and so many neat dynamics that show you kind of the little little bits of their character, but also their culture with each other. Yeah, and yeah, set up no, a lot. Yeah, it really did. And then I think um, again back to the issue which Edith was raising from the beginning about sort of the representation of elf and dwarf cultures together. Um, the, the tree, right? The sapling of the, uh, the tree, the tree of Linden that Elrond gave to Durin, you know, that, Rowing. cause yeah, yeah. The, the, the Elrond seeing the tree and Disa talking about the tree and Durin's caring for the tree is itself like the the heart and turning point of that scene right of that of that whole wonderful scene um and is itself the this um like frontier of cultural encounter between the two right where we get this very decidedly elvish thing um in the middle of his dwarf home right um and um you know and we see the way that you know it becomes you know very explicitly a symbol of their friendship right um and a visual so i mean even the way in which you know it is on the one hand sort of off to the side there right like off in that sort of alcove there so it's not like it's in the middle of the room or something like that where you know all the whole room focuses no but it's also in like the only open space beam of light the sky too which i feel like was quite revealing yeah yeah exactly um Exactly. So, um, yeah, uh, um, that, um, the way in which the glimpses that we get into dwarf culture, I think the kind of, the kind of exposition that we get, the kind of, uh, view that we get into dwarvish culture in that scene, um, I think transcends almost anything we get in all of the Peter Jackson movies combined. Um, the one place that I would, you know, say, arguably, you could say, we get a similar kind of glimpse into it is some of the stuff that's done with Thorin and Thorin's backstory at the beginning of the first Hobbit film. Um, you know, when we're introduced to the, you know, the Arkenstone and uh, the kingship and then the coming of the dragon and how much this all means to him and ending with, you know, Thorin at the forge, the blacksmith forge, you know, um, uh, nursing his grievances and everything there were, you know, we do get some kind of understanding of, um, you know, dwarf worldview and what matters to them and, uh, and all of these things. Like we, we, we do get some glimpses into dwarf culture, um, that is sort of deep and interesting in those moments at the beginning of, 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 uh, whatever it was, I'm totally blanking. What was the first, uh, the first Hobbit. Hobbit film called Unexpected Journey. An unexpected journey. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, don't, I don't remember. I don't I'm remember. blanking on the title. Um, I but, do remember um, that, that part, but I felt like, like I totally agree. You see some some nice little knots, but it also just feels so much wrapped in exposition in that yeah. bit. Yeah, it was, and like was a sort of royal history rather than you know, it's not like somebody's dining room. Right. It's it, it doesn't have that that kind of sense of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but. Um, uh, anyway, 
Boom. Unexpected journey. There we go. There we go. Desolation of Smog, Battle of Desolation of Smog. I don't know why I forgot that. Battle the the Battle of the Five Armies. Yes, the uh, the intervention of the definite articles. Um, but um, um, anyway, so um, we um, um, Arabani. That is a fascinating comment that you've just made. Where on earth do you get that? I mean, I'm really interested in this the development of dwarf society that you're that you're stating. But not only can I not think of any places in Tolkien's writings that support that, I can think of many that don't. Um, mm. I mean, I'm interested in your in your in your view. I mean, I think that that's a really interesting picture of dwarves. Um, I'm just um, I'm just trying to understand. But again, and this is one of the things that we've been talking about at times. Um, this is one of the things that makes Tolkien so powerful as a writer is that he is able to suggest so many things and invite you. And he does actively invite us to fill in the blanks ourselves, right? He'll say these really evocative things and, um, and then our own imagination picks it up and we continue on. Right. Um, he didn't say it. Right. But it it lives in our mind. Right. And, 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 and it, it, it takes root. Right. Because, um, but, but honestly, it's not there. In the text, which is fine. Like again, this—that's—that's that's precisely how Tolkien's text is working, right? Inviting you to 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 do that that piece of imagination. But that's, I think, one of the biggest problems that happens when people then come to adaptations is they have those things where their own imaginations have filled in a lot of gaps, uh, which is cool. But now somebody else's imagination is filling in the gaps, and yeah. the ways in which you're filling in the gaps don't match up. And and then and the response is. See, that's not true to that's not true to Tolkien, right? Um, it's 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 um it's interesting. It's um it's challenging. It's challenging. The risky run. I mean, you're never going to be able to satisfy everybody's imagination and creativity because so much is left to our imagination. We can do whatever we want with this. So you're never going to satisfy everybody. But the track that they take is trying to live within that world as well as they can. That it's all believable and mm-hmm. gives a few more nuggets that make us latch onto it. Like now, mm-hmm. some of the things that I've been given from Rings of Power have replaced anything I know from the text because I believe it so much because it was so well presented, mm-hmm. you know? And that's really cool. Like, I like when you start to, I remember doing this with like, I did a study on fan fiction and I started to lose the line of what was actually from the real text and what was from the fan right. fiction. I was on. Oh my goodness, yeah. And, yeah, and that's just really neat to find that blur. And that blur is really powerful. But when you start yeah. to think, that blur is right or that blur is wrong that that language doesn't really work here yeah Yeah. it's 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 hard between thinking a lot about lots of people's adaptations of tolkien and thinking a lot about how tolkien's own ideas change over time and reading all those different things a lot and getting old like the result is that i'm confused all the time like i'm I'm, I'm, uh, constantly making slips and mistakes about wait was that is it, is that actually in Tolkien and is that in the Lord of the Rings or is it, you know, elsewhere? Is that in the pub? Did that make to the publish somewhere really? Well, know. it's also tough when you have an encyclopedia yeah. in your brain, Corey. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try, but sometimes the index gets messed up, but, um, um, anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, like I said, these things are, um, uh, these things are really, oh man, Aries, I don't have time even, I can't even, um, that, um, <laughs> Uh, about uh, why the books must be kept sacred. Like I can't even. Um, that's a lot. Um, 
Was that the to question? That, what supposed to be yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talking about how things are morphing and evolving and that, and because things are morphing and evolving through adaptations, that's why the books must be kept sacred. Um, I think I have to go with uh, the Sam Gamgee that would take a week's answer or none, and I don't have time for it right now. But um, um, the, just the very, very short version of that is simply even the books, them, even the published books are not like the published books are only one expression of Tolkien's ideas at one point um, and not his favorite or best ideas mm. at all points. Um, and so this is why I, there is no such thing as Tolkien canon. Um, his ideas were continually developing. And that doesn't mean that everything he developed later on is better than what came before. Um, and sometimes he disagrees with himself and goes back to an earlier idea and all kinds of things. Like we can't, it's not, um, it is simply, it's I simply think, not as not as simple as that, but. And, yeah, and I think it comes down to individual relationship to the text as well, because the text can absolutely be sacred to you because sure. of what it did to yourself, because of absolutely. where you were in life, yeah. you know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of interpretation, nope. Right. You know, exactly. It's a, yeah. It's a, the publisher said this is good enough. Yeah. Goodness. I mean, again, like the first person to object to the idea that that which is published is what is what equals Tolkien's thoughts and best ideas would be Tolkien. Like he disagreed with his publishers all the time. In particular, like he wanted to get the Silmarillion published in a very different form, by the way, than the final published Silmarillion. Had the publishers agreed with him. What we would have now from the Silmarillion would curl your toes in some places. Like it's just very different. Um, but um, anyway, it's it's. But but I certainly agree. Nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with people like sort of holding the text sacred for themselves. Like and that's and this is why I always say like you don't have to worry about adaptations because the books they will still always say the same thing. Like it's not gonna that's not gonna change. Um, but. Um, Yep, exactly. Meow, this is me not answering that at all. So here we are. Um, it only took two or three minutes. Moving on. Yeah. Here we go. Moving back to dwarves. So, um, ooh, very briefly, because we're almost done. Um, but um, uh, the way in which we get, um, let's talk about one of the things, one of the sort of dwarf uh, worldview adaptation elements that was added was unique. As far as I know, I don't know of any other adaptation that's done this. The whole resonating the stone thing, mm, right? Love that's that. one element of dwarf culture. That's a major element of dwarf culture, and I believe in innovation on their part. Mm. Um, I thought that was really interesting. So, like on the one hand, uh, it's something that's new, and the question is, like, you know, does it? Um, oh man, what's that word we invented? That with the help of uh, 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 some of the viewers about the like if it fits with the world, um, it, it was it wasn't it, harmonized. Uh, it was uh, like anacosmic. That was the word. Anac anacosmic An is is it was like the anachronistic, but we wanted not the chronos, but the world. So anacosmic. If it's is it anacosmic or not, right? Or to put around positively, is it cosmic? Like do, does it fit the world, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I um, uh. I think that um, the I to me it is to me it is I don't think it doesn't deviate from anything we're explicitly told um, even the fact that it's secret like the way in which Elrond has never heard of this practice before until Disa reveals it to him right in that dinner conversation suggests like the, there's this I I think that there is an implication that she is 
sort of um, it's a confidence shared at that point to some extent. I don't think that she would necessarily talk about that to some random elf who just wandered in, you know, who had no background. Um, mm. She's never met Elrond before herself, but as evidenced from her speech about the tree, she knows very well what the friendship with Elrond has meant to her husband and how big a part of his life that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she views him very differently than she would a strange elf that she'd never met before. Um, a strange elf, that would be like Not protective Sorry. of it. No. Yeah, it's just agreeing with you. I'm like, yeah, that is a really good point because she's not protective of the information. She shares it really openly. Yeah. But it's the yeah. thing he didn't know, so clearly he must be family. You know, like that right. trajectory right. works. Right. And and what the concept suggests about their relationship with the stone, this whole idea of like that they it's not exactly just a personification, simply a personification of the stone or the mountain, right? There is an element of personification in there. Like there's a sense that this is a two-way yeah. conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it isn't um uh it's not simple and there's still like this sort of ritual element to it. And it's, it's less, it's not like, um, for, for instance, uh, another version of that that could have happened was like, maybe there could be some of the dwarves who have this like um, quasi prophetic role. Like they can hear the mountain speak. Like, I guess instead of seeing dead people, you hear mountains. Right. Uh, so like you know, somebody who can hear like, so like the mountain cho- chooses to, reveal its will to certain people who to certain dwarves who then you know tell everybody else about it right that could have been one way in which they've done it but but that would have placed them in this like quasi-religious role you know relationship to the like it would have been almost a sort of priestly or prophetic figure um but it, it, it you know so they avoid that dynamic entirely um by having this sort of resonating like that you know they um they have this way to perceive things about the mountain like the mountain can reveal things to them um but without the same kind of um active will you know on the or active communication with less personification right with less anthropomorphizing of the mountain uh than they have and i thought that that was really um i thought that that was really interesting and phil i was also thinking about the spirit of karathras um who in the book it does suggest that he is in fact aware and can interact, even if his interaction only involves throwing snow. Um, uh, I like that it was using yeah. music. That you know, we're yeah. we're talking so much about music in our own language of this because it has yeah. to tie in and work. But I like that it was music that revealed this, and we have in the titles, you know, the vibration of of the music kind of making yeah. sense of the world as well. So there is something about the power of that that feels like a key that can unlock things or settle things or discover things that yeah this yeah. this rug yeah 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 exactly um and it does i mean that's certainly unfortunately the word that we invented is a negative word anacosmic like to decide whether something doesn't fit in the world the opposite simply cosmic doesn't really work real well as an adjective right so we need we we we, we need a we need another word uh, the 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 companion word to say of something that does fit within the world. But anyway, whatever that word is, it would apply, I think, to this whole idea of singing and resonating. Like the fact that it comes down to music um, yeah. 
uh, and even you know the idea of music and vibration and vibration being a part of the forming of shapes and things, which is um, you know illustrated in the opening sequence of the show, right? Repeatedly illustrated in the opening sequence of the show, and its ties back to um, you know the the Ainulindale and the idea of creation through music in Tolkien's Legendarium. Um, I, I, tracks for me, like I you know I'll buy that for a dollar. That 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 definitely that definitely works. Um, again, it's not, um, it's not, um, uh, Ooh, sin cosmic praise. Love it. Love yeah. it. Sin cosmic. Yeah. Yeah. Sin cosmic. That's exactly the kind of word that I wanted. Um, just to, to be a, to be a logical opposite to, um, uh, and sin, I like sin S Y N as the prefix because it mm -hmm. means, it means with, right. So, uh, um, uh, and it's Greek too, so it's not one of those things where we're putting a Latin prefix on a Greek word. So that's good. That's good. That's good. Sin cosmic. Um, yes. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I think that's. I, that, I, I think sin cosmic. I like it. Um, I, I did find it very sin cosmic that that should be musically. Uh, yeah. That there should be music involved with that, um, and that dwarves should be in this sense. There should be something deeply. Um, sort of musical in their interactions just the the kind of um the way in which they treated the stone the mountain not as an environment right to be explored or exploited but uh in this almost sort of symbiotic relationship with the mountain um not again not in some kind of um uh religious or superstitious relationship either where they had to like you know yeah, but but yeah, it, it yes, you know they there is a, a spiritual element to it, that ritual spiritual element to it. But again, it was more of a kind of a symbiosis than it was a kind of um, superstition. Like, oh, will the mountain be angered if we do this? Like, it was not like that at all. Um, no, it was more of like a worship, especially with you know wearing those long gowns, standing in a circle. I mean, they looked like a choir. It was yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's um um uh I think that's I think that's uh I think that that was really interesting and really seemed to fit. Even even the way in which it did have those kind of quasi-religious trappings. Again, I I I want to say quasi-religious cuz it's not like they were worshiping the mountain or it was a, but the, it was. It did have the sense of of of, <laughs> of a sacred ritual, right? That was being done. Um and um, the level of that seemed appropriate. Like that there are sacred rituals fits in Tolkien's world, but what there is not in Tolkien's world is a whole lot of um, actual worship of deities that almost never happens. Like only happens in one place in all of Tolkien's world. The elves don't do it. Um, um, that is have a, you know, a place in religious worship, uh, worship rituals and things like mm -hmm. that. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't see that. Um, nor do we see it among the dwarves, but Hey, but again, it's, I felt that that sacred ritual atmosphere to that moment seemed a really good way to sort of tread that line. Um, and it was, a, is a, you know, a line which Tolkien himself seems to be treading at various points. I also like what it does for Deesa's character because it gives her a skill. So it's not just the wife. She's not just ambitious. It's it's a lot of things that build her character into being this powerful 
you know, partner to this mm-hmm. prince. And you can see how they work together. And I love the story of how they met where he kept showing up to her singing as if it was, you know, a public thing that one could attend. And he just kept right. dropping in to watch her sing to the mountain. Like right. that was a lovely way to incorporate that tradition into their meet cute. Like cute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, we are running late. I feel a little bit bad because we had technical difficulties at the beginning, so we've been shorter than usual, which is why my internal clock is not telling me we're late and have to go. But uh, but nevertheless, we are late, and we probably shouldn't go. So, um, uh, But thanks, everybody, for joining us. We okay. should be back again next week, uh, and we will um, – uh, we will we will continue to I don't know if we'll continue with dwarves necessarily, but we'll um, we talk about dwarves in games, but I don't want that to be a whole thing. So maybe we'll like finish off dwarves and then start yeah. off. Yeah, yeah. Other yeah that, that makes that makes sense. It would be interesting to talk about dwarves, um, like dwarves, uh, the depiction of dwarves in Lotro uh, and the depiction of dwarves. Um, yeah. uh, I can't talk too much about the depiction of dwarves in the under, upcoming dwarf game. Um, but, but some, I think we can talk about that a little bit, I think. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, so there's, um, um, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of fun stuff there. All right. Thanks everybody. Uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate your joining in this discussion. Lots of great questions and comments today, and we'll see you guys again next week. Bye now. Yeah.